Yes, today I am honored to be joined by legendary sportscaster Bob Costin. Bob, what's going on, man? I'm all right, John. How are you doing? I'm fine, man. Enjoying this. It's getting kind of warm over here now, so where I'm at, so kind of enjoying that. <laughs> all right. How's your day going? Not too bad. Not too bad on the West Coast. It's always nice weather here, at least almost always. Right. <laughs> Four years at NBC. I mean, 28 Emmys. Vince Cole Award. You're, 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 you've done so much in your career. Can you speak on that? Oh, I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right time, um, more times than I can count. Uh, being at NBC, I was lucky to get there when I was still in my 20s. And at one time, although NBC still has a very high sports profile, at one time in the 90s, they had just about everything. Right. They had the World Series, or at least a portion of it. They had every NBA final. They had the NFL and Super Bowls. They had all the Olympics. Plus, I was doing a late-night talk show that wasn't sports-oriented, and I was doing occasional contributions for uh, NBC News and appearing on Saturday Night Live or David Letterman or on The Tonight Show. So the whole combination of those things uh, was hard to match. That was kind of the prime chunk of my career, and luckily for me, Uh, The audiences were large then. It was before the cable explosion, so it had a different kind of impact, and I got to be involved in so many memorable moments. So people associate me with those moments, and that's a plus for me. Yes, you're definitely part of some of my memories. (laughs) You made a couple of famous NBA calls, and we'll live on in history forever, forever. So um, you consider Michael Jordan a goat. Is there any chance um, LeBron ever pass him in your eyes? Well, LeBron is among the small handful of greatest NBA players. I guess there's a case to be made for him. I always separate centers from forwards and guards. I don't know how you compare Kareem to LeBron or Kobe or Michael or Magic or Larry Bird or, for that matter, Wilt Chamberlain, who was awesome in his time, uh, and others. Uh, Bill Russell, who won 11 championships in 13 NBA seasons. Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal. Those people are in a separate category, I think. But the reason why I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT among other players is that you could make just as good a case on the raw numbers and the raw achievements. Ten scoring titles, six for six in the finals, the MVP of all six finals. Even if you could make a case for LeBron as being equally excellent. I don't think anyone will be equally great because the impact that Michael Jordan had on the NBA and on pop culture is just overwhelming. The NBA in the 90s was just a different thing than the NBA today. As interesting uh, as the NBA may presently be and is filled with wonderful players, there was just something different about the NBA in the 80s and 90s. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Julius Serving, Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Tim Duncan, eventually Isaiah Thomas, Stockton and Malone in Utah, Dominique Wilkins. I mean, it was a galaxy of stars, but at the center of it eventually was Michael Jordan. And you had the first Dream Team in 1992, and all the biggest games were on network television when network television meant something different than it does now. So there's no comparing the place that Michael Jordan held in water cooler conversation uh, and in the public imagination with anybody else. He's at the top of that mountain. 
Um, I had a brother have Isaiah, um, Isaiah Thomas on the show previously, and he said the Bad Boy Pistons got a bad rap because all the highlights you see on YouTube, they had them fighting all the time. But he said it was more than us fighting. He got kind of upset. You <laughs> said they got a bad rap in that, in that way? Well, you know what happens a lot of times? People like an easy label. So is it true that they were the Bad Boy Pistons, that they had the so-called Jordan rules anytime he comes into the lane, make them pay for it, knock them down? Uh, was Lambeer and, and others willing to fight? Sure. Sure. Rick Mahorn, guys like that were willing to mix it up. No doubt about it. Even Isaiah, who was a little guy, he would scrap with you. So that was part of their identity. And right. that became kind of the easy hook. But there's always something more than that. They couldn't have won two championships had they been just a rough and tumble team. Uh, Isaiah is one of the great point guards in the history of the game. Chuck Daly was a tremendous coach. Joe Dumars was a wonderful player. Uh, they had Rodman at an earlier point in his career. Uh, Lambeer didn't make a lot of friends around the league, but he was effective for what he did. Uh, right. They were a heck of a basketball team. And so if Isaiah's point is that they got lost in the shuffle between Bird's Celtics, Magic's Lakers, and Michael's Bulls, I think he has a point there. I think they have a, a complaint that they haven't gotten their just due. Yes, he made one of the most historic plays in, in sports history, June 14, 1998, and finals game six, the last game of Michael Jordan's career as a Bull in the Bulls dynasty. Can you take us through that last, through the game, the environment of the, the stadium? Well, the Delta Center in Salt Lake City was going crazy. Utah had uh, lost to the Bulls the year before in six games. The difference was that that year, Utah had beaten the Bulls twice in 98. Utah beat them twice during the regular season. Right. That gave them home court advantage uh, in the finals. They split the first two games in Utah. One of those games went to overtime. So uh, the Jazz might have come out uh, with a 2 nothing lead. Uh, as it was, it was 1-1. Then they're down 3-1, and everybody counts them out. They managed to win game five in Chicago and force it back to Salt Lake City. So the sixth game is up for grabs. Scottie Pippen is hobbling around with a bad back. If there had been a seventh game, it would have been in Salt Lake City, and that would have been a small edge for the Jazz. So right. it wasn't like they were there as sacrificial lambs. They had a good chance to win uh, the game and ultimately to win the series. And the right. game was close throughout. So if it was just that, just the NBA Finals, it would have been a terrific game and a terrific series. But it was bigger than that. It was big for Stockton, Malone, Jerry Sloan, because the Jazz had come close so many times. But bigger yet in the public imagination for Michael Jordan and the Bulls, because it was obvious that this was the end of a glorious run, one of the greatest runs in the history of American sports, where the Bulls had made basketball fans out of people who didn't know pick and roll from a three-pointer. Michael right. Jordan was front and center, uh, and the Bulls were in the finals for the sixth time, and it was time for the curtain to come down. So all of those things were at play. It wasn't just the game itself. It was summing up the Bulls' dynasty and summing up one of the greatest careers, individual careers, in the history of American team sports, that of Michael Jordan. So 
that broadcast had to encompass not just the analysis of what was happening and not just the play-by-play. It had to capture some of that, some of what that era was and some of what Jordan's career meant, and I hope that we did that effectively. Yes, we did. Painted the perfect picture. (laughs) The perfect picture. I remember my favorite part of the last, or one of my favorite parts from the last dance was when he interviewed Dennis Robin and Scotty Pippen, and Dennis said he was going down court to plant on the last play. And Scotty said, I'm going to get the hell out of the way. But they knew Mike wasn't passing the ball. (laughs) Well, uh, you could sense that. He snuck up behind Carl Malone and made the steal along the baseline, and no bull touched the ball after that. He brought it out of the backcourt. He paused for just a second before he made his move. Uh, And you could tell that make or miss, that last shot was going to belong to him. And that was the right thing to do. I mean, he right. was their main guy. Uh, he, he, I can't remember how many shots he took in the game. He scored 45 points. He right. shot under 50%. But they needed him to do that because Pippen was hobbling around. And there was, other than Kukoc, there wasn't anybody who was going to take up uh, the scoring slack. So Jordan relied on himself as his team had so often relied on him. And that turned out to be the right choice. Definitely. And the TV I watched it on, he didn't push off. He was up close to me. You saw oh, it no. everybody. <laughs> he he made his he made his move and the defender was already stumbling away and he barely touched him. That wouldn't have been a foul in a regular season game. It's just people that either are Jordan haters or they were disappointed if they were rooting for Utah, but that wasn't a foul. The real complaint right. that the Jazz had in that game was two calls went against them and the calls were wrong. Howard Isley made a three-pointer, and they ruled it came after the 24-second clock had run out, and the okay. replay clearly showed it was in the air with one second still on the shot clock, so that should have counted. And right. then later, Ron Harper made a two-point basket for the Bulls, and he didn't beat the shot clock, and they allowed it. So that's right. a five-point swing. That's Utah's legitimate complaint, not any push-off on Michael's last basket. Um, Mike retired after that. You think he went out at the right time? Could have been a better time to go out. He came back with the Wizards, but that really doesn't that really doesn't count. He came back with the Wizards just because he has a competitive itch that needed to be scratched. But right. it was definitely the right time to bring the curtain down on his Bulls career. Uh, he and the Bulls had to struggle to win that one. They won it on will and professionalism as much as anything else. Uh, the Pacers took them to seven tough games in the Eastern Conference Finals. They weren't right. dominating as they once did, so they might have given it up on the court the next year if they hadn't just called it quits at that point. And, of course, Jackson, Pippen, and Rodman were gone after that. It wasn't just Jordan. So it was pretty clear that this was going to be the last dance. And you can't top that kind of ending, not just winning the championship, but winning in such <laughs> dramatic signature style on the last Jordan shot. So that was the time. Right. You've interviewed a lot of people, a lot of great athletes, different sports. You also been interviewed by some great people. I wasn't being interviewed by the um, great late Larry Larry King. Well, Larry King had a style all his own. He liked to ask quick, direct questions uh, and then wait for the response. It was kind of a rat-a-tat thing. Other announcers are more expansive in their preparation and in the way they present a question. Everyone right. has their own style. And that style worked for Larry on both radio and television. His style was to make the interview subject comfortable and hope that he or she would then say something interesting. His style wasn't to interrogate anybody or browbeat them. Um, And it worked for him. You know, there's a lot of different ways to be good. And he was good in his own way. 
Have you ever thought about how it is being etched as one of the best sportscasters ever in history, in sports history? Well, it's very nice if people think that. Uh, it's also subjective, and especially in a social media age, there's nobody who's 100% popular. Sometimes people have legitimate criticisms or preferences. Other times it's just crazy stuff because there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there about everybody and everything. But if in general people think well of me, then obviously I'm happy about that. <laughs> obviously it's better than if it was the other way around. Right. Um, you were able to interview a young Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. What similarities did you see in both of them that we, might, that we still see today? Saw from Kobe. Well, the similarity is that both were unusually mature for their own age, despite the fact that their backgrounds were much different. Uh, Kobe, before he wound up at Lower Marion High School in Philadelphia, right. had spent a good part of his childhood and youth in Italy. Uh, he was the son of an NBA player, Joe, Belly, uh, Joe Jellybean Bryant. Right. Um, so he had a certain pedigree. Uh, he had certain advantages in his life. Um, LeBron James came out of a much different background, single mother, uh, more of a hard scrabble uh, situation growing up. But when I, inter I interviewed them both when they were just 18 years old right. uh, and entering the NBA right out of high school. And although LeBron was not quite as polished as Kobe, you could tell how intelligent he was and how mature he was. He right. gave thoughtful, common-sense answers to every question about how he would deal with fame, how he would deal with the expectations and the temptations of making that kind of money and having people around him, some of whom would have his best interests at heart, some wouldn't unless he kept them at a distance. Uh, right. And I wasn't surprised that he became not only as great a player as he did, but that he has led <clears throat> as successful a life as he has led, because you could tell that his head was screwed on straight. Right. Do you think most people keep LeBron second in the GOAT case because there's tenderness on the court sometimes? We all, know, we all know Jordan had the killer instinct. He wanted the last shot. He was, like, born for that. Well, LeBron tends to make the best basketball player whether he's shooting or fine or continuing. Well, the situations can't be directly compared, but Michael does have more moments that are set in the public imagination more images of him in clutch situations that go all the way back to his making the game-winning shot uh, for North Carolina, Carolina against yeah. Georgetown in the 1982 NCAA Finals, and so many other moments where he just rose to the occasion. Right. LeBron has some of those moments. He has the block in Game 7 uh, against the Warriors when right. the Cavs came back from down 3-1. He has a number of moments, but not right. as many as Michael has. Uh, one of the great things that LeBron has going for him, though, uh, he essentially plays his own position. You're going to list him as a power forward, but he often brings the ball up the floor. Uh, he can play any position, one through four, and I guess he could probably he could probably be the five if you needed him. Right. <laughs> uh, and his assist total is remarkable for a man of his size. Uh, he's a statistical marvel. He's physically gifted. He's very determined. He's 36 years old and still either the best player in the league or very close to the best player in the league. He stays in tremendous condition. He's team-oriented. But when you talk about team, one of the things that helped Michael in terms of popularity 
and public perception is that he spent his entire career with one team, right. whereas LeBron was with the Cavs twice and with the Heat and now with the Lakers. And he was great with all of them, but that doesn't build the same kind of loyalty in a fan base when right. you're not in one place for your entire career. I'm not, yeah, counting, I'm not counting the Wizards with Michael because that was an afterthought. Right. That's one thing for the, um, most people be seeing in the argument because LeBron switched teams and they keep saying he's so good and God gifted that why you need so many teammates. Well, everyone needs great teammates beside him to win. It's just Michael only had really started pissing with him. But LeBron went and got D-Wade and Bosch and now <laughs> Anthony Davis. Yeah, Anthony Davis. Well, that's the new you. NBA. That's the modern NBA where you can almost, it's almost like a pickup game. Let's go to the schoolyard. I'll take him. You can take him. I'll take him. Right. So you, superstars are, are in effect assembling their own rosters. So LeBron is just playing the game the way it can be played uh, right. in the 2000s. Definitely. Um, there's one story I wanted to talk to you about that recently came to my attention. Um, O.T. Simpson, um, <laughs> Bronco Chase, he tried to call you from the back of the Bronco. That is literally came to my attention. Yeah, OJ and I had been friendly, of course, because he was on NBC's football pregame and halftime shows, and I was the host of those programs. And for whatever reason, uh, OJ was trying to reach out to people that he thought would be sympathetic to him in the media. Obviously, he wasn't thinking clearly. It was only several days after the murders. Uh, now he's in the back of the Bronco uh, with AC Cowling's driving his old Buffalo teammate. And I didn't know it at the time because he wasn't able to reach me, but he did try to call me from the back of the Bronco. And the one time that I've seen him uh, in the last more than 25 years is when I went to visit him uh, in the LA County jail in November of 1994, the murders took place in June of 94 and the trial didn't start till January of 95. So he's awaiting trial. He's in the jail I go to visit him. A.C. Cowlings was with me. Um, and as we were just making small talk, uh, they brought up that he had tried to call me from the back of the Bronco. And right. if, in fact, he had gotten through, I guess it would have been among the most memorable moments in television history, as it was. It right. like the whole country was watching it on every network. But if he had reached me and if I had been able to convince him to go on the air, uh, heaven knows what would have happened in that conversation, but uh, hard to imagine that it wouldn't have been memorable. Right. <laughs> and I got to say again, you guys did a wonderful job navigating what was going on there. It was a busy day for sports. <laughs> you guys did a great job handling all that coverage. Yeah, it was a tightrope walk between the game itself, which obviously was important, game five right. of the NBA Finals tied two games apiece, Marv Alberts calling the game. But much of the country is transfixed by this Bronco chase it wasn't even a chase he was moving at a slow speed but right. you've got a whole platoon of policemen following him and helicopters up in the air uh and you don't know what's going to happen when he eventually arrives back at his house on rockingham right. uh, we know what happened now but in the moments leading up to it you didn't know if there'd be a violent confrontation or what might happen uh at the same time we couldn't abandon the game other networks had the option of abandoning whatever their programming was, but we had important live programming going on. So it was my job to kind of navigate it and move it between Marv Albert calling the game and occasionally during lulls in the game, I'd take it back and quickly get it to Tom Brokaw at the news desk, and then he would update people on what was happening uh, regarding what was going on with OJ. 
Uh, but even Madison Square Garden, this is before most people had cell phones, but word of what was happening went buzzing around the garden. So the attentions of the fans, even avid Knicks fans who were into the game, a lot of them were also uh, trying to get updates on what was going on with OJ. So it was a, a surreal circumstance. I think it's a narrative that social media was like it was now, back then. It would have been a total circus. You know, well, social media today. It was a circus as it was when you think about the trial being on TV every day and, right. and it took over cable TV and actually changed the nature of cable television um, where now cable TV rides certain scandals or tragedies and tries to wring every last bit of programming uh, and ratings out of such circumstances, tragic as they may be, as cable TV possibly can. You could say that that was the dawn of that particular era, for better or worse, in cable television especially. Right. Um, Every show I do, I'm always a sponge. Um, Every guest I love learning from. And I've learned the more reps you get, the better you get. Um, What advice would you give anyone to think about pursuing sportscasting or being a host as myself and you were or? Well, one of the things you have to keep in mind is to get as well-rounded an education as you possibly can if we're talking about a younger person. The more interesting you are, the better read you are, the wider your frame of reference, the more interesting you'll be as a broadcaster, even if the general subject matter is sports. And the more widely read you are, the greater your appreciation of language becomes. And after all, broadcasting is about the spoken word. The other thing I advise young people is don't be disappointed if the first time out when you listen to the tape, you don't sound anything like what you hope to one day sound like because nobody is terrific at it right out of the box. So cut yourself a little slack, but also eventually you have to be honest with yourself. Some people have the knack for doing it, and they can polish it if they have that knack, if they have that talent. Other people, no matter how bright they are, no matter how dedicated they are, uh, just aren't equipped to do it. And there are lots of jobs within broadcasting that don't involve being on the air. Producers, directors, researchers, support personnel, creative people behind the scenes, writers. So uh, for every person who's on the air, there are many more times over that number of people that are involved in the broadcast but are never seen on camera or heard on the microphone. That's very true, very true. Um, You were part of the Inside Story, the recent documentary on the greatest show on earth to me, Inside NBA. Um, Can you talk about that and the chemistry that Kenny Smith, Shaq, and Ernie and Charles Barkley have? Well, first of all, in Barkley, you have one of the most entertaining lightning rods in broadcasting history, just sports. Uh, Everything he says, whether it's profound and insightful or occasionally ridiculous, he says in an entertaining way. And he can get away with saying certain things that might derail the careers of other people. And then when you have Kenny Smith, who has a strong personality of his own, and Shaquille O'Neal, who came ready-made with a huge public profile, you've got the makings of a really good program. And then in Ernie Johnson, you have the perfect maestro. He's the person who's kind of orchestrating the whole thing, moving it around from person to person, getting out of the way if they're just bantering between themselves or stepping right. in has to, to clarify something or move things along with the appropriate question. And the most important thing, or an important thing at least, is their format. Their format is so wide open that it gives them the room to be themselves. They have more time, and it's not, not tightly formatted. Every network show is tightly formatted. 
Right. You put these guys on a half-hour ESPN or NBC basketball pregame show, would they still be good? Of course they'd be good, but not as good as they are on TNT because TNT gives them all the room they could possibly hope for to do the best work they're capable of. Yes, and they're doing a phenomenal job. That's my favorite show. <laughs> That's good. Favorite. It's really good. Yes, it is. Uh, Bob, thank you for joining me. I know you had a long day. I have more other interview, interviews after this. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you you're, so much. You're welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. Yes, that was legendary sportscaster Bob Costas. Thanks for joining me. Catch you next time.